Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by The Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim and as always I'm your host for this week's podcast. This is actually the first podcast of 2019 so there's, <laughs> there's a lot we need to catch up on, um, dear listeners. Uh, basically we decided at the tail end of 2018 that we were gonna rebrand our website and and really kind of hit the ground running in 2019 there's a lot that we have had in our heads and things that we wanted to do internally with the team and um you know myself and Hasib, uh the creative director of the muslim vibe we kind of co-founded it together we sat down early on in december and we kind of had a look at our vision um mission statement aims and objectives and that's the that's that stuff we drew up in in 2018 Sorry, in 2014, um, when we first launched the Muslim Vibe, and and we hadn't really taken a look at it properly. So we sat down and we we did some brainstorming. We sat down for a whole day, in fact, just to kind of really figure out what we want to do and, and plan for 2019 and, and the year ahead. So um, there's an article actually on the website that talks a little bit more about um, 2019 and the vision and the direction that we're going in. We've also launched TMV Agency where we're offering kind of consultancy, um, workshop and training around various different digital things, any, anything you need digital basically. Um, and and we're, we're hugely excited. One of the focuses for this year um, is really trying to step up in terms of quality of content. Um, that's down to, or that's, you know, that, that comes down to like looking at things like the audio of the podcast, making sure that the audio is as crisp and as clean as possible and, and I've been personally working quite hard over the last um, couple of weeks, tweaking and, and playing around with different settings and seeing how we can optimize the quality. And fingers crossed, I think I might have got somewhere with that. So I guess going forward, um, listen out and, and let us know, give us feedback. And I think that's one of the really important things as well that we discussed that we want to hear and we want to be as receptive as possible to our audience. So if there's anything that you guys come across um or there's any thoughts that you have any guests that you want on the podcast reach out to us it's really important for us that we get to know what you want to hear um and, and that we kind of provide that uh for you so this week's podcast is something actually quite different from what we've done previously um i sat down with uh sheikh ali hussein datu who had just completed doing a series of lectures um at a local mosque looking at um, Surah Yusuf and focusing on various different elements of the story. And obviously the story of Prophet Yusuf is, is well known. It's one of the better known stories, I think, in the, in the Quran. And, and the Prophet said that it's, um, I think, the, I don't know if it's the Prophet or in the Quran, you'll have to excuse me, but it says it's the best of stories. Um, and so we wanted to sit down and, and explore the different, elements of it this as i said it's a little bit different to what we normally do because normally we talk to guests about their own personal journey their own story but this we were looking specifically at at the surah and almost doing like a a, a tafsir or a um i guess a reading into it we don't we, we time didn't allow us to to really go deep into the kind of from a textual perspective and looking at the the words specifically and whatever else so we took the themes um off the surah off the chapter and looked at each one um, and spoke a little bit about them and, and what lessons we can draw and, and how we can kind of practi- practically um, I guess benefit from 
from what's in there. So again, let us you know have a listen and and please do give us feedback. If you think that you want to hear more of this kind of content, we can do that. We can you know we can sit down with with Sheikh Ali Hussein. We can sit down with other sheikhs and look at different chapters. And and again, the reason that I wanted to do this because when I sat there listening to those lectures, I realized that like we don't connect with the Quran in the way that we should in a meaningful like it's it, it's just a book it's like when you have the you know when you have a, a wedding even a funeral um and everything in between we start with a chapter of the quran um but it's there to like dress up an occasion if that makes sense but we don't really connect with the words we don't really learn the lessons that we should learn from it so we wanted to try and see um if within the space of 45 minutes to an hour we can kind of really look at a lesson or look at the story of, of, of one of our beloved prophets and and really kind of try and take something away from it. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a listen and again, please get in touch and let us know what you think. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sheikh Ali Hussein Datu um, talking about lessons to be learnt from Surah Yusuf in the Holy Quran. Enjoy. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Alaikum salam, salam. Thank you very much for, for joining me on this podcast and for agreeing to um, do this with me. I know we're trying something different here with the podcast. Um, we're looking at Surah Yusuf um, and getting a bit of insight from yourself, inshallah, and just kind of going back and forth and discussing the Surah and some of the the more nuanced points and, and things that people can take away from this. So I think I'll, I'll hand over to you. Thanks, Salim. So this surah is very interesting uh, in comparison to other surahs in the Quran. It's the only surah which is uh, a story from start to finish. There are a couple of verses at the beginning and the end where Allah is speaking to the Holy Prophet directly, but it's still related to the actual story and incident itself. It's the only story of Yusuf mentioned in the Quran. So this particular story which we're going to speak about where Yusuf and his family move from Palestine to Egypt, it's the only story, chapter number 12, where this is mentioned. It's a very practical surah in that you can actually take away practical tips yeah. in implementing in our daily lives. I think it's, it's also one of those surahs that people often reference in lectures and in talks. And, and I think it's, it's, everyone knows the story because you'll always hear about the beauty of, of Prophet Yusuf or his father's love for his son or the jealousy of his brothers and, and the whole incident with um, the wife of, of the advisor or whoever. Um, and and I think that's the, the, the thing and, and the reason why I, I wanted to specifically talk about this surah first was because there's a lot of human elements to it and a lot of it's very relatable today. Correct. So there's a lot to extrapolate and take away that you can put straight into your life. Whereas in other chapters in the Quran, you'll learn on a superficial level, some verses may not seem so practical today until you begin to delve into the mm. tafsir of them. Whereas this one, from the onset, you can see that it's very practical, practical and relatable today. Yeah, no, sure. So the beginning of the surah talks about uh, a theological aspect, actually. Allah is mentioning to the Holy Prophet that, firstly, we're revealing to you the Quran in Arabic, and then we're about to narrate to you the best of stories. So even God is mentioning that, yes, there are other stories in the Quran, but this one that we're about to mention to you is the best of stories. According to Ahadith, we know that the, the Jews at the time were aware of this story because it was present in the Torah. And they wanted to bring about some sort of humiliation to the Holy Prophet. They were not in acceptance of his message. 
And so they told the Quraysh to go back to the Prophet and ask him about Yusuf. Because it was a story that they thought was specifically mentioned in the Torah. Thus far, the Holy Prophet had not spoken about Yusuf in this manner. And so the Quraysh came to the Prophet and asked him, tell us about Yusuf, thinking that the Prophet would be humiliated by not knowing about it. And the Quran is clear that Allah is mentioning to the Holy Prophet, they're about to reveal this story to you. The best of stories. And prior to this revelation, you were unaware of it. So it can bring about a theological question as to whether or not the Prophet was aware of such knowledge. Was it true that there were other people at the time of the Prophet who were more knowledgeable than him in certain aspects uh, of our theology, of of prophethood, of different prophets? We answer this question quite easily. We know that the Prophet will have the necessary knowledge in order to complete his mission. It doesn't mean that he has to have every single piece of knowledge in the world. But anything that's required for his mission, yeah. anything that's required to come... So you're saying that it wasn't necessary knowledge for him to have at that moment? Not at that moment. But now that his prophethood was being questioned, yeah. now obviously the knowledge becomes imperative for him. He clearly must have known something about Yusuf, that there was a prophet called Yusuf and something must have happened to him. These peripherals must have been known but to him. But the intricacies of the, the detail that we have in the Quran. Exactly. The detail is about to follow now. Yeah. And interestingly, the question that was posed by the Jews and the Quraysh was tell us how Yusuf and Yaqub move from Palestine to Misr. And the whole chapter talks about these intricacies but doesn't specifically say why they moved from Misr, why they moved from Palestine to Misr. The Prophet could have simply given an answer that he moved from Palestine to Misr because he was sold as a slave and he went into the king's palace. It's a very succinct kind of answer that he could have given. But instead he went into so much detail which left everybody around him quite dumbfounded. Would that then mean that the inverse is also true that we don't have a lot of information about many of the Prophets because it wasn't necessarily necessary for it to be as part of revelation to the prophet. Does that make sense? Correct. So maybe the Holy Prophet knew about, you know, different prophets in detail himself as personal knowledge that may have been given to him. But in terms of revelation, it clearly is not imperative for us to know about it. If it was, then it would have been mentioned in the Quran mm. or it may have come down in other sources, for example, a hadith. We have, for example, about Dawood in some detail in a hadith. We have about Suleiman, Ibrahim, other prophets even mentioned by name in a hadith. Yeah. But in the Quran, I mean, there are 124,000 prophets. It's not necessary for us to know everything about each prophet. What's necessary is to take away elements of their life that you and I can learn from. Yeah. And that's precisely what God's doing here in the chapter of Yusuf. And and so with regards to uh, this particular story, obviously we we moved on at, at the beginning of the surah. Um, uh, Prophet Yusuf is telling his father about the dream that he had, um, and he says, "Don't reveal it to your brothers and whatever, as you know, they'll want to lead you astray, or they'll they'll you know they'll wish ill against you." Um, the I, I always find that the jealousy element really interesting, um, and for me personally, obviously this is like my own. Um, interpretation of it but I, I see like he has quite a few brothers um, and I see that as almost like a reflection on society and, and the fact that you know we're all kind of one ummah and we're all kind of brothers and sisters and whatever else and the, the, the ill feeling that they have kind of towards him is something that societally we can have against people and we have these kind of issues um, and jealousy i think is something that's rife within the community and it's something that when you kind of see it presented in that way and and in its ugliest form how it can manifest itself 
in terms of wishing to kill your brother. Um, and then I think one of them basically comes out and says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just chuck him down a well. Um, but that, that's why I think it's very fascinating, quite a, a real practical kind of thing where you can see how this festers and how this then becomes something so extreme. Right. So it, it's strange to see that such a vice can creep in between blood brothers. At least they shared the same father. So they were blood brothers to an extent. Uh, and for jealousy to take one to the extent, like you mentioned, to be ready to kill one another, it shows how strong this vice is and what the ramifications of it can be. Yeah. Not only in that time, but even today, blood brothers can still have you know, jealousy between them. <clears throat> Families can break up because of it. Friends, communities. So it's something that we have to be very careful of. Even when we look at the first sin, known to us at least, about of uh, shaitan, of iblis, and when Satan clearly had pride over... Adam of Adam that he was made out of fire so he felt he was great but it wasn't just pride it was jealousy as well because Adam is being given a status that he wasn't mm. that all the creation all the angels were being told to prostrate in the direction of Adam and that hadn't happened to Iblis or Satan so clearly there was jealousy present there yeah. as well as pride and you look at what the ramification was <clears throat> that till the last day he's going to be astray he's led astray he's taken away and his only purpose in life is now to try and take others astray as well. So one sin, but the effect of it is so long-lasting that until the final trumpet is blown and the day of judgment comes about, he's going to be on the wrong path. I'm also thinking of uh, Cain and Abel, Habil and Qabil, same thing, right? Jealousy. Exactly. Um, yeah. Again, between two brothers. It's, it's quite... Uh, I hadn't thought about that until, until just now, but it's quite... Uh, jealousy seems to be quite a serious issue. In the Quran and like, you know, in, in just our, in moral life. I yeah. mean, it's one of those sins that is going to eat an individual so much. They just cannot stand to see someone else being given benefit. Mm. And they won't come to ease unless that person is no longer given such a blessing. So what they do is either they eat themselves inside, their conscience is continuously biting them. They're not pleased. They're not joyous. They're not happy because they're seeing gifts and blessings being given to somebody else. The other alternative is act against against it, act upon this jealousy. How do we act upon it? Well, I'm going to want that the blessing doesn't go to that individual. It's not about asking God to bless me as well. That would be the correct thing to do. If I see you being given something good from God, if I see you being given a position in society or something in the material world, even in the spiritual world, if I see that you're gaining so much knowledge and I see you you getting closer to God, I should be able to ask for the same thing that God also give me as well. That would be the the normal thing to do, the moral thing to do. That, oh God, continue to give him, but also give me as well. But when I start saying, why him and not me? That's when I know that this vice has crept inside me. No, of course. Um, and coming back to the, the story of um, Prophet Yusuf, I don't know if we'll be able to kind of chronologically go through the whole thing at, at one go. But for me, there are, there are certain elements of the story and I'm just going to, go through them with you and ask you for your for your own kind of uh, input and thoughts on it. I think another part of it, and, and I think it's something that's throughout the whole journey, is the patience um, of Prophet Yusuf. And it's something, I think, specifically when he's in jail. Um, and when and there's also the, the fact that he would rather... he You know, when he wanted to clear his name as well, I, I thought that was quite a significant part of it, where he'd rather sit in jail um, than then come out and um, and tell a lie or whatever it was um, specifically there. But 
what can we learn from from his patient throughout the whole his whole ordeal and his whole life? Well, it's very clear that the only reason he was patient is because he was relying on God. That he knew that I'm doing what will please God. I'm going to be patient with the surroundings and the difficulties that I'm being put into. And the only one who's going to help me and the only one who in reality can help me is God. So I'm going to rely on him. And that patience led him from the pits of a well to becoming the head of the treasury that was most respected and an individual who everybody wanted to get close to because at the, there came a time when they needed rations and food and he was going to be the head of that treasury and you know giving it out to people. So because of that patience he had and the reliance on God that he had, which was very sincere, such that he didn't fall into sin, even at a time when it was very easy for him to fall into sin. For example, with the wife of the Aziz inside a room where nobody would have seen him committing a sin. He held himself back from a most basic human desire for the pleasure of God. And whenever he does that throughout the story, when he's in the pits of the well, he could have complained to God, but he doesn't. Like Ayyub in the Quran, you know, when Ayyub is inflicted with difficulties and illnesses, when it gets a lot for him, he doesn't complain. He says, Oh God, evil has touched me. And then he says, But you're the most merciful of the merciful ones. Mm-hmm. Could have turned around and said, It's got too much for me. Get rid of this illness or why me? That would be complaining and not being subservient to God. If you and I believe that God has our best interests at heart, He's only doing what's good for us. Then naturally when he's at the pits of the well, Yusuf realizes that God would only have put me at the bottom of the well if there's something good to come out of this, if he's going to look after me, not because he wants to punish me. And so he's patient. And as soon as he gets to the pits of the well and the bottom of the well, Allah reveals to him. Uh, and this is where Allah tells him that we're going to uh, let you inform your brothers of this incident at one time. So he's very tranquil here. He knows that God is speaking to him and he knows that what's happening to him is only because God is protecting him and being his guardian at the same time. As as lay people, human <coughs> beings, does that not then become difficult to kind of relate with and and um, resonate with? Because if, if we're in a situation in life when we're kind of in, in a metaphorical well, down in the dumps, whatever, and nothing's going our way, we don't have that wahi, we don't have that inspiration where God is speaking to us. Um, so how, how can we practically kind of relate with that? A very good question. You know, I heard something recently that really opened my eyes. Somebody said, um, he said that if your destiny was being written by your parents, you'd be at ease. I'd be a doctor. <laughs> you'd be at ease because you you know for certain that they will only write for your destiny what is good for you because yeah. of the intense love that they have for you they're never going to write something evil for you he says so what about he who loves you much more than your parents why would god ever write something evil for you why would he put you through difficulty simply for pain not because there's something greater for you at the end of this path if you love God to that extent and you look at him from that perspective, that he's so merciful and he loves me more than any other being loves me, then anything that he's doing for me can only be for my own good, not for his own good, because mm-hmm. it can't benefit him. If he's infinite and he has everything at his disposal, then you can't add to him or subtract from him. Yeah. So whatever he's giving to me is only for my benefit and my good. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... 
we talked about patience, um, and I think you also mentioned what the the, the opportunity or, or the incident that he found himself in with the the wife of the Aziz. Um, I think that's also a, a very interesting episode, and I think on a textual basis as well. From my own understanding, we had uh, Jay Dean on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he he referenced that this portion of Surah Yusuf as well, and he spoke about the fact that. I think the text says she desired him and he desired her, but for his um, faith in God. I can't remember the exact wording. You can correct me on this. Um, And the point that he was making is that it becomes very interesting to note that as a prophet, he still had desire and and he still had that human element to him. And that's something that as a a young and and good looking man as he was, and, you know, one of the, the best looking men in creation from from a hadith and from our understanding um he still had that desire it wasn't like he was you know he was just impervious to all of this there, there was that element was still there um so yeah the 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 that part of it like can you explain that a bit further so i think this is the the climax of this entire story have i skipped is, ahead no, no, that's fine. <laughs> we could have spoken a bit more about the well, but that's all right. So <laughs> we, we can come back to the well, it's fine, I don't mind. So, after going into the well, being taken out, now being sold as a slave, you can imagine he was a free man, thrown into the well, being taken out, and when the people, the caravan that passes by, the traders that pass by, when they see him, the first thing that comes to their mind, as is mentioned in the Quran, they say that this is a, a young servant. And we can profit from him. We can make money out of him. It shows you that there's no humanity left in these individuals. Even when they see something, the first thing that comes to their mind is their goal. You know, in the Quran, there's a verse that says um, about your base desires becoming your Lord. Have you not seen the one who's taken his base desires as his Lord? Sometimes we, we feel that that can never happen to us. God is, you know, God, whichever God we worship, this one God, whatever we call him, this one God is our Lord. But here it shows you that sometimes the reason you get out of bed is to make money. These individuals were traveling. The only thing on their mind was money. And when they saw a young child of seven or nine years old, the first thing that came to their mind was not let's help this child go back to his parents, was how can we, you know, kidnap him and now make money out of Mm. him. They sell him. So now you can imagine the plight of this young child who's being sold as a slave in a market in a strange land because now he's taken to Egypt. Then he goes into the palace because the king and his wife, or the the Aziz rather, and his wife may take him as a son. So it seems that maybe they don't have children. Then he grows up and the same woman who initially wanted to adopt him has now become infatuated by him. And then she arranges and brings the environment about such that she locks all the doors inside this room she calls him in and every time she's called him because he was a slave to them or a helper every time she's asked him to do something he's done it for example clean pick up xyz as a helper may have been asked to do he's been obedient so she seems to be of the understanding that now if i ask him to commit this act with me he is also going to accept and he's not going to refuse and as you correctly mentioned all abrahamic faiths believe that he was extremely handsome so now the environment is brought about. He's put inside this room. The doors are locked. And it's clear from the Arabic in the Quran that she didn't just close the doors, but she firmly tightened these doors. So she was also scared of anybody finding out 
what's about to happen. She closes the doors, she tightens them, and then she commands him and says, come to me. She expects him to accept. And the first thing he says is that, you know, God forbid, the first thing that comes out of his mind is not that, yes, I'm attracted, let me think about it. The first instant reaction that comes from him when he's called towards evil is, God forbid, this is such a beautiful verse in the Quran. He says that my Lord has given me such a good abode. You're asking me to go against the, the, the being that when I was in a well took me out. When I was being sold, he put me in a palace. When my brothers were plotting to kill me, he saved me by going into a well. That being that has looked after me, you want me to go against him? He doesn't say that God will punish me. That's not the first thing that comes to his mind. And that's what tends to come to our mind when we think about doing wrong. We're about to do something wrong. The first thing that comes to my mind is God isn't going to be pleased. He'll punish me. Because that's the type of God that we've built up. Yeah. That's the God we've been taught about. And sometimes that's the God we teach. So we want ourselves to pray. Not because we see God deserving of being thanked. That I want to thank God for the six hours that I've been awake for that I've had no problems, things have gone smoothly, or any problems that came about, he's given me a solution. I just want to thank him for allowing me to breathe and walk and see. But that doesn't come to our mind. What comes to our mind is he's going to punish me if I don't pray. So let me quickly pray. And that doesn't bring about love of God. That brings about a type of fear in God. Here Yusuf is saying, the reason I'm not going to do anything against God is not because I'm afraid of his punishment, but because I want to be thankful to him. And to be thankful to him means to listen to him. That's the first aspect of this incident. Then she sees that he's not moving towards her. So now she makes a move towards him. She runs towards him or makes out, makes for him. If we stop the verse there, what you mentioned was correct. That he also went towards her. She went towards him and he inclined towards her. But the Quran continues. Had he not seen the proof of his Lord. This shows that he had human desire. Mm. And had he not seen this proof, he would have gone towards her. He may have fallen into this sin. But he was a prophet, number one. Number two, he saw this proof of his Lord. What was the proof of the Lord? We can come towards that in a second. One question I'd like to ask you is, why do you think he's, Allah says that? Why, di why didn't Allah simply say that she made for him and he did not make for her? Or he did not lean towards her? It would have quashed this whole discussion as to whether or not he inclined towards her. You're putting me on the spot here. Well, we have to make this a, a, a monologue. This isn't how this works. A dialogue. A, one, way, one way question. <laughs> um, well, I think it's, it's what, I was, what I was mentioning earlier. I feel like it, it, it humanizes the situation. It humanizes the prophet as well to the extent that we can understand and appreciate that he was human. But why didn't God simply say that she went for him and he did not lean towards her. Are you going to tell me the answer? So I think if we look at the Quran, it's very <laughs> clear that Allah is making a statement here. He's telling you the reason why he did not go towards her. Mm. Had he just mentioned that she went for him and he did not go towards her, there are tens of excuses one could have made up. One could have said she was not beautiful. He was not attracted to her. He That's why he didn't that go. Someone might come in. He was that, scared. Yeah. He was scared of you know the king or his her husband coming inside mm. the door, opening the door. There are tens of excuses one could have given. 
they would have said one could have said that Yusuf was inclined towards her but didn't go because of xyz reason all of those reasons are now you know put to rest the only reason Yusuf did not go towards the wife of the the prince or the aziz yeah. is because of god that he saw the proof of his lord it's god that stopped him from going his love for god and him witnessing god's proof what is this god's proof we find that the proof of god that is being mentioned here is that he sees he must have been at a at a level of intellectual understanding and spiritual uh, understanding that he sees that the handiwork of god he sees that everything is being moved by the permission of god you know like it says in the quran that do you see the birds that fly above you they expand and contract their wings ma yumsikuhunna what's holding them up who's holding them up for you and i it's the expanding and the contracting of the wings but god has just mentioned that in the verse before that yes they expand and contract their wings but that's not holding them up what's holding them up ma yumsikuhunna illa rahman except the mercy of the all merciful god is saying even the birds are flying only because of my mercy that i'm keeping them afloat and letting them fly yusuf sees this around himself he sees that everything is being done by the permission of god Like the Quran says wherever you turn your face you see the wherever you turn you see the face of your lord so he sees god in everything it's not possible then for him to go against this lord who he sees everywhere whose handiwork and whose signs he sees everywhere and i guess that's the 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 constant struggle for us as well right to try and remember that because it's one of those things where um a few years ago my i had a back injury and um when that happened I realized how weak I was as a human being and how like fragile my body was and that just with one little issue in my back I was immobile for weeks I was I had to be on painkillers and whatever else um and when we're in good health even when we're in bad health as well because it can always be worse there can always be something else to happen I think showing that thankfulness to God and and, and really truly appreciating appreciating that from inside is where where I think we struggle um and it's something like even with with praying salah on a daily basis where people often and and I've been guilty of this in the past as well and until today as well every now and then where you'll leave it till right to the last minute to pray because it's like oh I have to get out of the way because of what you were saying earlier where subconsciously or even it might be at the front of our head or at the back of our head we're like we have to do this otherwise God is going to punish us whereas we need to start flipping that narrative internally where we're really starting to appreciate and see the fact that actually God's given us so much this is something that I want to do on time straight away and like this is th- the least that I can kind of do to show my gratitude for what I've got in life um but I think that's it and and, and it, it comes down to the the dunya the world right and I think when you're in a position where you have the capacity to actually stop and say you know what I have to go pray right now do you mind if I just pop off for 5 minutes 10 minutes we should try and do that but i think too often especially like in the uk with long summers we're like oh it's fine i can pray and i can pray dhuhr and asr until like 7 8 pm i'll be fine um that's where i think we kind of slip up and and because we we're not seeing our rahman we're not seeing everything that that god is doing around us on you know manifest because we don't have that kind of spiritual level it's like you said it's a change of perspective that it's time to pray god is calling me mm. but look how merciful he is that even if if i reject his call and go to work he still gives me the ability to work 
And if you call somebody and you're in absolute control of that individual and they go against your, not even command, but at least your request here, because God given you that time limit to pray in. So he's requesting you to pray on time. You've called somebody and you're requesting them to come in your office, for example, an employee, you request them to come at this particular time. And you see that they, they're not hastening. They're not coming quickly. They're, they're delaying your calling and they're going towards others. It hurts. Yeah, and you might actually say, you know what, I need to stop giving this individual a bonus. I shouldn't give them anything extra because they're not really willing to listen to me. But God is totally the opposite. Even if we reject his call or his request, he's still giving us. Mm. That even if you want to go to work, instead of coming to me, I'll still give you health. You'll still be able to move your hands and legs. You'll still be able to work. But do come back to me. It shows you the mercy of this Lord that we have. If we change that perspective and we look at him as a merciful Lord, naturally we'll be running to every request of his. Even inside the Salah, you know when we stand up, we say, I only stand and sit by the power of God. All of us have had a dead leg at one time, of pins and needles, and we think we're in control of this body and we try and stand up and we fall back to the ground. It shows you, like you said, how weak we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. We can't move without the permission of God. If that's what we saw around us, that everything is the handiwork of God, then naturally we'll, we'll love Him and we'll remember Him. And finally, we have to get rid of this perspective of Him being a, a wrathful God. There's a time for punishment and a place. But I think the reason why we are taught and we teach sometimes this God of punishment is because we're afraid of the vices around us in society that we're easily going to fall into this vice. What's the easiest way to stop a child from going to wrong? Tell him that he's going to get punished. That's one method, but that doesn't work all the time. You know, when you tell a child not to do something, they're inclined towards it all of a sudden. Instead, teach them why they shouldn't, why they, the one who loves them doesn't want them to go towards it. And if you love God, and if you want him to continuously give you even more, then listen to him. I think it, it, that's quite interesting um, because I think the way that I see my own personal upbringing in terms of like from a community perspective, there was always that element of go pray, otherwise you're going to go to hell. That kind of approach was taken. And what I'm seeing now uh, amongst the sort of young parents that I know is that they're, they're teaching. And, and obviously, you know, we've, I think in the UK as well as a Muslim community, by and large, second and third generation migrants where Islam is, has been taught back home in a very different way and it's taught here in a very different way. And I think, you know, as you said, the the external, I don't want to say threats, but the external influences and everything else that we have, it's it's quite, uh, people are scared, especially, you know, from families that came from traditionally the East towards the West, suddenly they're seeing this kind of alien land where there's, there's, where alcohol wasn't previously readily available on the streets here, you can buy it anywhere and all the other things around us. Um, I think that was the approach that was taken. But now that we've matured um, in terms of being embedded as sort of Western Muslims, the narrative now that's being put forward to our kids is is exactly what you're saying. And it's going to be interesting to see the difference um, in terms of the dynamics. And, and if we have God-conscious kids that kind of um, have that element of love for God and wanting to please God and do things in that way. Because it's something that I think um, I know at least personally along the journey of my life, I've I've started to try, you know, this whole paradigm shift. I've, I've started to do that internally myself. But it's very easy to slip back into the old school way of thinking, which for me personally isn't very fruitful in terms of my own 
spiritual growth, if that makes sense. Mm. So how... I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, in coming generations because I think as that, as the, the, the wrathful God, as we've kind of been preached, and it's something that even when you look at um, evangelical preachers, Christian preachers, what I find really interesting is that all they talk about is God is good, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and it's all positive and happy and all of that kind of stuff. Now, my, personally, I feel like there's no counterbalance on, on, on their side but Islam has always been about the middle path, right? So having the, the, the Jamali and the Jalali elements of God, the, the beautiful attributes of God and the more wrathful ones, um, and, and, and having that middle ground, I think somewhere between uh, hope and fear um, is, is what's discussed Correct. in a hadith and things like that. <coughs> so yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> we, like you said, we have to change our perspective before we can teach that perspective to children our yeah. own children uh, and i think you're correct maybe our parents brought us up in this manner because they were alien to the influences around us they didn't know how to handle or, or how to advise us to you know stay on the straight and narrow path yeah in schools and university when they've not um gone experience through the experience of themselves yeah. what they did wasn't wrong you know it's the best that they could do at their time and i'm sure if we were in their position we would probably have done the same but now that we've got that head start and we've been through schools and universities here, gone to workplaces, we know the challenges. And in actual fact, it's only getting more difficult as the generations pass on. So even us having been through as first-generation Muslims, we're honestly not at the same level as our children in terms of what they're experiencing. We haven't really experienced what they're experiencing at the age that they're experiencing. Like even my own personal experience, (laughs) I was thinking back to when I was at university, we didn't have WhatsApp groups back then. There was no way of like coordinating with people on that level. There wasn't Snapchat. There wasn't the the level of of interactivity that people have now and accessibility to different platforms. I remember back then having Blackberries with awful cameras, um, and now Blackberry. I don't I don't know if if Many young exist. people listening to this will even know what a Blackberry is. Um, but you're right, and and that's the thing. Like I, not I start to feel old, but like I. I I struggle to relate, I guess, with with younger people because of the rapidly changing climate and what people are going through at university today is going to be wildly different from what I was experiencing less than 10 years ago. Um, And that's the thing. So it almost feels like, (laughs) you know, we'll be having this conversation in 15, 20 years time uh, when our kids are older and they'll be talking about us in the same way that we would talk about our parents' generation um in that the approach was wrong because or not wrong but the approach is now different because of xyz and i think as you said like we would probably do the same thing our parents did and and there there maybe was a time and place for it yeah what's important is that every generation that comes moves further yeah learns from the past and builds up upon it not that they begin to regress Yeah, yeah so so long as we're progressing yes we've now understood that god is not simply wrathful this isn't the correct manner or the best manner rather to teach an individual about God, if we want them to love God. If we want them to fear God, then by all means, that's how we teach about Mm. God. But let's impart God to our youngsters, our children, as a God of mercy. You said correctly, you know, you've got the, even when they, um, Jehovah Witnesses, when they come to your door, they just speak about a God of mercy. They speak about heaven. They hardly speak about hell. So that's one extreme, as we could maybe say, because you have to have a balanced approach. That's one extreme. We're on the other extreme where most of the time we just speak about hell. Yeah. 
So we have to find a, a middle path. Yeah. And and talking, uh, coming back to the whole uh, notion of parents and whatever else, uh, the father of um, Prophet Yusuf, um, I, I also find his um, journey throughout all of this very interesting, and especially the details about his love for his son, um, which is something I think almost in, in modern society we've, we've lost that notion where there, there's almost this kind of expected stoicism from men that they have to be very kind of emotionless and, and you know, the, the strong alpha type um, role in, in the household and whatever else. Um, and there's, 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 this, there's this very nice, um, I think, side to him where he cries for his son just for being separate from his son, because he's he's told by his um, by his other sons, and they present the the ripped and bloodied shirt of of Prophet Yusuf, and I, I believe that he doesn't he doesn't believe them. He knows that his son is alive, um, but despite that, the separation for so many years, he cries to the extent that he goes blind, um, and I think that's that's quite. It's quite a lot. I mean, you know, it's, it's quite it's, telling about this relationship yeah. right, between father and son or parent and child. And correctly, uh, you mentioned that today, especially men, are not seen as uh, men if they have such strong emotions. Mm. Whereas Islam teaches quite the opposite in terms of relationship between parent and child, that you have to have emotions, both mother and father. It goes a step further in treating the children, speaking to them, for example, a, a baby, speaking to a baby in a, in a baby's language yeah. and encourages that, encourages a father and a mother to play with the children. The prophet used to go on his fours in order to take his grandchildren on his back. You would think the head of a state, you would think of the prophet of God, mm. an individual going and crawling around. And it shows you what the relationship should be like. Because when you build up that bond between parent and child, as life goes on, when they are put into difficulties, you want to be the door that they'll come and open and knock on mm. in order to speak to. The last thing you want as a parent is that my child isn't comfortable in speaking with me and is going and gaining advice from outside. Whereas I'm the one who loves him the most from, from, the, you know, from the beings, human beings. And I would like to advise him. I would like to be a part of his life. That's not going to happen if we don't build up that relationship from the onset. So clearly Yaqub loved Yusuf a great deal and his brother Binyamin. Again, the, the other brothers have interpreted this as being an unfair love, an unjust love, that our father loves our brothers more than he loves us. It's not the case. It can't be the case. Us as parents, if we're asked which of our children do we love more, we're never going to you know, pref prefer one over the other. We'll say that we we love all of them equally. That's the politically correct answer, though. I don't think I don't <laughs> think so. Really? I don't think so. as a parent, yeah. Especially if you have more than one child, you will you will never sincerely tell yourself, even in your own heart, that you love one more than the other. You may show your affection in a different manner to one over the other, but you will show your affection depending on the needs of that child. If there's a younger child and an older child, you might spend more time with the younger child, naturally, because he's younger, he needs more of your attention. Yeah. If there's one child who's going through certain difficulties or has you know, certain challenges in life, you might spend more time with that child. You might take them out more. You might build up a more friendly relationship with one compared to the other who you're now training and you're now trying to correct and discipline in those teenage years, for example. Mm. It doesn't mean you love one more than the other. 
but the manner in which you're showing that love is obviously going to be different. And that's what I think they have misinterpreted. Yusuf and Benjamin were the youngest. So clearly, Yaqub looked after them and their mother apparently had passed away. They were from different mothers, these mm. two and the other ten. So he maybe maybe he had more of an inclination towards them for these reasons. On top of that, he knew from the dream that Yusuf is going to be selected as a prophet. Either he is or is becoming a prophet. So he must have given him more time in order to impart his wisdom and knowledge to him for the revelation to continue through Yusuf. So again, there's a reason why he may have been spending more time. And clearly he was very protective over Yusuf, maybe for this particular reason. You interestingly mentioned about them coming back, the brothers coming back with this blood-stained shirt from uh, traditions that we have from the, the Prophet and his family. We're told that when they brought back this shirt, Yus- uh, Yaqub was clear and knew that Yusuf hadn't been devoured by this wolf because in the hadith it says, rafiqa, that Yaqub said this must have been a very friendly wolf because the shirt wasn't torn. It had stains of blood over it, mm. but there was no tear inside this shirt. He was clear and he knew that Yusuf was alive. One, because of the dream. The dream had to come to fruition. And secondly, because of the way in which the brothers had come back to Yaqub. Yeah, and so as I mentioned, Prophet Yaqub was, was blind. Um, or he, he became blind, I think, through his mourning, the separation from his son. Um, and then I think the, the end of the story and the end of the story is, is quite nice when it kind of the full loop is completed um, and his brothers and his father um, come to him because I think they're going through a, a time of famine um, and they, they have a request, I think, in terms of food and whatever else. And little do they know that the person standing before them is actually their brother. Um, now, I know what I would do in that situation <laughs> if, if those were my brothers and I was in this powerful position. Um, but what does uh, Prophet Yusuf do? This really shows what a moral individual will become. You know, sometimes we we look at individuals being moral and we think that he's above being human. How can somebody react in such a fashion? And it's interesting to note that this is how we want God to react with us. That despite the evils that we commit, the transgressions that we act upon, we still expect that when we turn back to God and seek his forgiveness, we expect that out of his mercy he will forgive. And traditions are clear from prophetic traditions that tell us that if you want God to have mercy on you, then you need to have mercy on people on earth. I mean, it's something we say in our society, don't we? Say, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. So mm-hmm. treat others the way you want them to treat you. Yusuf had the two options here. As the brothers came back, as they realized that this is Yusuf, they, could, they did ask for forgiveness. Yusuf could have taunted them. Yusuf could have reminded them about all the difficulty he's been through because of them, about the sin that they committed, about what jealousy did to them, about the fact that they were willing to kill him. And in the end, he could have reminded them about all of this and said that I'm not going to forgive you. Or he could have put conditions to his forgiveness, that I'm only going to forgive you if you do X, Y, and Z. But you find that he just doesn't even mention it. He puts it aside. He doesn't even recount what happened to him. He goes a step further. And when Yaqub comes and he puts his parents on a throne, and now you find that everyone's prostrated. Now, this prostration is not like the prostration we do to God. It seems that it's like the, the courtesy, you know, the, the bowing down, mm. what we have in different Eastern cultures of individuals bowing down when they greet each other. It seems to be that type of prostration. 
So they prostrate or they bow down towards Yusuf because he is now in this position. And that's when Yusuf mentions that this is now the fulfilling. coming, the fulfillment of the dream that God mentioned. It was in the initial verses that he has this dream. And at the end of the story, it comes to fruition. Mm. He doesn't mention to his brothers about the sin that they've committed. And even according to a hadith, when his father asks him, tell me about what these brothers have done to you. Yusuf replies and says, ask me what God has done to me and I'll tell you. He changes the perspective totally. He says, if I tell you about the brothers, I'll tell you about the fact that they threw me in the world. I was young. It was lonely. I was lonely. I was it was dark. I was sold as a slave. It would have been all the negative aspects. And that's one perspective of looking at life. You know, the, the glass half filled. Look yeah. at all the difficulties. Instead, he tells his father, ask me about what God did to me. And I'll tell you how there were people, not even brothers, but there were people who plotted against me. Mm. Because Yusuf said it was shaitan who affected. He blames it on Iblis and Satan, that Satan is the one who must have put these things in their hearts. Them as human beings would not have wanted to kill me as their brother. It must have been the, the plot of Satan. He would have told his father there that, yes, I was in the pits of the well, but look at how God took me out. Look at how I didn't drown in the well. Look at how I ended up in the palace. Look at how when I was in prison, I was taken out only when my name was cleared. And I had the opportunity to demand that my name should be cleared in order for me to come out of prison. Look at how God has given me this station that I'm the head of the treasury. Look at now how I've been able to bring you as my parents to myself in Egypt. And I have the necessary wealth to look after all of you. He was looking at the aspects of God's handiwork, which is out of his mercy. Not looking at the difficulties that God put him through with his permission, obviously. Because these, these were like training exercises for Yusuf. He had to go into the well in order to train himself to have that patience. He had to be put in that room with the wife of the Aziz in order to train himself and hold himself back from base desires in an illegitimate fashion. To act upon them in an illegitimate fashion. And I think it, um, there's that verse in the Quran... Um, you plan, God plans, and verily God is the best of planner. Where it's like everything that was plotted against Prophet Yusuf, God had a superior plan, or God had his own plan. Um, and, and that's where I think for me it all kind of ties together where the patience that he showed throughout the, the ordeal, the, the God consciousness in all of this, and, and that being the central focus of everything where every step along the way he kind of mentions God or, or thinks of God and, and it's, it's made evident obviously through the, the surah itself um, and I guess that's probably the, the, the big takeaway from this at least for me um, that w we need to have the the God element if I can call it that just in our lives constantly just surrounding us where everything we do everything that we're we're experiencing we know number one that God is there God is witnessing what's happening as well and trusting in God's plan you're absolutely correct um, this verse of Quran that is oft repeated that it doesn't really mean plan makar in Arabic means plot mm. so there are individuals who have evil intentions and they plot and God uses their evil intentions to plot against them so God deceives them with their own plot and God is the best of those who can deceive individuals using their own plots. Mm. 
it's a bit convoluted, but if we look at it in a practical fashion, the brothers of Yusuf tried to plot against God, not against Yusuf. They were plotting against God. This was a, a servant of God who was a righteous servant. They were plotting against God and God used their plans to deceive them. They thought they've got rid of Yusuf by throwing him in a well that is probably drowned and he's either dead or he's being taken by individuals and that's it. They'll never see him again. But God uses their plot to deceive them in order to fulfill his plan. And his plan was to move Yusuf from Palestine to Misr, to Egypt. Then he uses the intentions of these individuals who have taken him in a caravan that they want to sell him. Their evil intentions of selling a young child as a slave. He uses that again to fulfill him his plan of moving Yusuf from the marketplace in Misr in Egypt to inside the palace in a high station. Then he uses the plan or the plot again of the wife of the Aziz. Her evil plan to seduce Yusuf is used to fulfill God's plan of moving Yusuf to prison so that he doesn't have any difficulties of all these women as is mentioned in the Quran. Then a whole group of women try to seduce him. So God moves him to prison. Then you have again the plot of Iblis of Satan. In the Quran it's mentioned that when one of the companions of Yusuf or the cellmates rather went out of jail, got free, Shaitan and Iblis made him forget the cellmate, made the cellmate forget mentioning Yusuf to the king. So that was the plot of Satan, that he wanted Yusuf to remain in the prison. But God used that in order to free Yusuf with a clean slate in the eyes of people. Had Yusuf been freed at that time, then he could not have demanded that I want my name to be clear. The only way he was able to demand was when the king needed him. When the king has a dream and he says, that, okay, bring Yusuf to me. That's when Yusuf is now in the driving seat. And he says that I'm only going to be free if you ask the women what happened. That's when everybody is made aware and the king is aware that Yusuf did nothing wrong. So now he clean, comes out with a clean slate in the eyes of people. So every time people plot against him, Allah deceives those individuals who are plotting in order to bring the plan of God to fruition. All of this happens because Yusuf is God conscious. In the Quran, it's mentioned that Allah creates us from man as, as men and women from different tribes and communities. We're all different. But who's the greatest? Who's the closest to God? Not the one who has wealth, not the one who has a particular skin color or comes from a particular tribe. In Akramakum and Allahi Atqakum, the most noble from amongst you, the one who's conscious, God conscious, the one who sees God everywhere, who remembers God continuously, and the one who works for the sake of God. I think that is a very good place to end this. Um, just wanted to thank you, Sheikh, for offering your insights into this. Um, into this surah specifically and hopefully we can do this more often because I've learned a lot um, and, and hopefully obviously people listening as well um, have also benefited from this so just thank you once again for your time thank you uh, that's it so that's all for this week's podcast um, just wanted to thank Sheikh Ali Hussain for agreeing to do this um, very graciously and for offering us um, quite a lot of insight actually in, into the, the chapter and into the story of Surah Yusuf. I think there's, there's so many themes just in that one story um, that it makes me realize that we, we really, really, really take the Quran for granted. And I think it's something that personally I, I really want to start 
trying to connect with and trying to read more and and really understanding and appreciating the the depth and the wisdom that's there this is obviously the word of god that we're talking about and so it's not something we should take lightly and as lightly as i know i do in my own life um and and i'm sure many others do so i think i'm going to try and 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 sit down and do another one of these if not for anyone else's benefit for then for my own um and i think and i hope and i've i've i get this feeling that people will will enjoy this um and it was to be honest it was a lot of fun i know it sounds weird but like it, it actually was enjoyable doing a bit of research beforehand um and then kind of getting into a conversation around it and you you start to see how quickly you can draw parallels to to kind of modern day issues and and what we and like what we face in our own lives and i think that's what's kind of really important so i hope i hope you enjoyed the podcast um everyone needs to do do us a huge favor if possible whatever platform you're listening on right now um if you can go on the app and kind of give us a five star rating and write a nice comment it, or a review it would mean a lot to us we're we're keen to reach as many people as possible and one thing i i actually love about the podcast is that it's a lot smaller the audience that we have than than on our website for example but it's a kind of dedicated audience and when we've had like sort of brief hiatuses i hear brief we had a hiatus for like six months at one point when we've had hiatuses in the past people have reached out and messaged me privately that are friends of mine but i had no clue were listening and they're like oh when are you guys doing another episode i missed the podcast and i was like oh i didn't you've never mentioned to me that you listened to this and i think that's that's the beauty of it that people really um engage and like really like the podcast which is great um and i think it's all down to the the diversity of of guests that we get on and the diversity of topics that we discuss um and so yeah it, whatever you can do just you know five stars subscribe whatever whatever is in your power if not then message a friend and tell them to subscribe and and download the podcast as well it would mean a hell of a lot to us i shouldn't have said hell but i'm not going to re-record this so here we are (laughs) um yeah thank you very much for listening and be sure to tune in next week when i'm going to be speaking to imam shane atkinson Um, who's the founder of an organization called the Southern Hospitality Islamic Center. um, He was actually the the protagonist of a documentary entitled Redneck Muslim. Um, He's from the Deep South. He's a convert to Islam. He's got a lot to say. It's not a podcast you want to miss. So be sure to check that out. And we'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.